Hey, good people, this is your NI Dom back with another reflection. And this is a personal journal for contemplative people looking to think, grow, and have impact in the world. So, hey, I am here for a part two. Um, I don't think I'm going to name it part two, but that is what I am doing. Mm, Ten minutes ago, I uploaded a reflection called The Impression. And that is because I woke up this morning with um, an impression regarding white supremacy. And um, I won't know exactly what the impression is until I'm done working it. But I hit the record button to work that impression through. In season two, um, which was the spring of 2021, I talked a lot about I did an episode on what's the different, what are the different types of reflections that I do. I think I even have something like that on my website. And sometimes I can have a single impression, um, a single thought impression. Sometimes I have a multi-thought impression. Sometimes I have an event. I mean, it, there are just different types of reflections that I do. But I'm right now in the middle of a single thought impression. And that single thought um, is around... Um, what I think to, what I think is white supremacy I think I'm not sure um, so and the reason why I'm hesitating is because I guess if it was going to be a single thought impression I would start off by saying I want to talk about white supremacy and I'm not approaching it that way at all so I don't I forget it <laughs> Nonetheless, I don't really know what I'm talking about. <laughs> Heaven help us if you're new to me, this project. But let me just um, stay the course. I ended that reflection, the one that I just uploaded to uh, about 10 minutes ago. I ended it talking about an irrational presence. An irrational presence. Um, that I have been experiencing a series of events um, over the past three months. And each of those events have been presented to me as rational. And they have been addressed in a rational way. But this week, it started, the impression started this week that while each event is presented as rational and resolved as rational because those events were complaints or concerns. So they are presented as rational and then they're resolved as rational, yet they persist. Yet that the pattern of complaining, the pattern of, yeah, the pattern of complaining persists. And I begin to question what's underneath the What's underneath that pattern? What is that pattern based on? So the impression started around me noticing the pattern. And then this morning I woke up believing that I have found the, the word for it. Or I don't even know if it's a single word, but the theme and I, I think it. I think it's about white supremacy. I think I'm not 
100% certain. And I'm excited because if it is about white supremacy, I'm surprised that it took so long for that impression to rise to the surface. And so in the first episode, I talked about what an impression is, how it exists in the unconscious realm. It's developed, excuse me, it, it, it's the manifestation of thinking that happens at the unconscious level. Thinking that happens at the unconscious level based on sensory data that we're not conscious to. And then when it begins to surface into the consciousness, it usually enters in as an impression first. And then we have to do the work to put words to it. I spent a lot of time, I spent almost half of that reflection talking about that. So please go check it out. I do not want to revisit that. But in this particular reflection, I want to pick up where I left off with asking the question about the pattern. Now, I did at the end of that reflection, I did name that pattern as an as irrational, but that's it. I just name it as irrational. And I'm believing that that is going to connect to white supremacy, but I'm not 100% sure. Okay? So, the term, their concepts I want to talk about today in this particular reflection that I didn't get to, such as law and order, red herring, um, and instruction. And um, so we'll see how this, let's see how part two goes, okay? Um, if you're new to this project, this is a personal journal where I process my inner and my outer worlds. I do so by using personality theory, the two that I use the most are the Myers-Briggs and the Enneagram, pushing those two systems together. I identify as an INTJ8. I also identify as an African-American woman from a lower socioeconomic background and from intergenerational trauma. I'm a trained and practicing social scientist and education, educator, excuse me, and I've been doing this work for about 30 years. Half of that time has been in leadership. I politically identify as a critical race feminist, which means I have an intellectual sensitivity to power as showing up in structures such as race or constructs, such as race, class, gender, sexuality, and blah, blah, blah. You guys like my academic word, blah, blah, blah? <laughs> um, this podcast is unedited and is unscripted. It is a journal. It is my public diary. If you want to know more about it or me, feel free to go to my website at youranidom.wordpress.com. So, um, it's been a while since I've done a back-to-back reflection. So, hopefully I can drop back in here and, um, and stay the course. And, um, in my primary life, I do want to start talking more, doing more, um, freestyle, ref- uh, episodes that follow an outline because my other podcast, I scripted, I write it out. Because I have an order that I want the conversation to go, so I write it out. But um, I want to really get to, I want to develop some skills around being able to stay the course and talk according to an outline. And I usually do that when I'm doing presentations. But there's something um, beautiful that I think that comes out of reflections when I allow myself to just meander and reflect. 
and doing that and following an outline just they don't feel um supportive of each other but I really want to work it out because there are some I just anyway I just want to work it out but then nonetheless so let me try to t- let me try to reflect by using a ref- uh, an outline that's the only reason why I brought that up because I'm like I'm excited to practice this skill that I want to develop reflecting within an outline reflecting within that outline. Okay. So at the top, and I don't have a real outline. I said that in part one This is really about five line items. Um, but that's not an outline, but it's a structure. Um, <laughs> I do this when I'm struggling, getting started. Yeah, I'm struggling. Okay. So the first thing was on this outline was the impression. I talked about that in the previous episode. I think one way to get people to understand this impression is by this impression that I think is related to white supremacy is by talking about um, three kind of events. There are three events that I've experienced in the last three months, but I'm in no way suggesting that those three events are exclusively related to the site that I am supervising as the principal. I'm not saying it's exclusively related to the district that I'm serving. I believe that the three events that I'm going to talk about are indicative of predominantly white spaces. They may they may have a broader reach beyond that, but that's where I've been able to observe it. So I've been observing these events over time, but I have not had the words for them. I haven't had the words for them. And so therefore, and I don't know if other, like I don't know if INFJs feel this way, but if I don't have a word for a thing, it's very hard for me to validate the thing as a thing. And when I first started meeting with my heart coach, who's an INFJ, I remember having this conversation and I said, I'm so jealous of you because you can intuit a thing and be confident about what you just intuited. I won't. If I don't have a theory of framework, if I don't have data to support vocabulary, to support that impression. That impression is not real. The impression is irrational. And introverted intuition is irrational. It's an irrational function. So when that's paired with a uh, a um, a rational function, it's difficult. And I'm pausing now because... I struggle with extroverted feeling. There are people who call that a rational function. But because feelings are irrational, I, I, I don't understand. And I'm trying to think, I think, I'm wondering if the INTJ academic, this guy from YouTube that I've named the INTJ academic, I wonder, did he do an episode where he took each function and said, Rational, 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 irrational. And so I know he did that with masculine, feminine. But I think a case that could be made, maybe he didn't say rational. Okay, I think he said he took each cognitive function 
and coded it based on its masculine or feminine energy. But that coding masculine feminine could be aligned to what I'm saying, rational, irrational. So introverted intuition would be irrational, irrational. Extroverted thinking could be rational, rational. Extroverted feeling could be rational, irrational. All right. If you are new to typology, you're probably like, what the hell is this lady talking about? (laughs) So I would encourage you to go look up Myers-Briggs and cognitive functions um, because that's what I'm talking about. And I'm not going to unpack that here. But I have been thinking about doing a um, revisiting my course that I started developing um, because some of you may, or just kind of providing some type of content for those of you who are new to typology and to, and you like the way I talk about it. Cause there are so many people out there in the world who talk about typology. And I'm often say, I always say, I'm not an expert. Don't listen to me, but I think I know enough of it that I could give you guys some content in isolation without storytelling. Like this is how the Myers-Briggs system works. And then some of you may want to hear that from me. So I've been thinking about doing that. Maybe I'll tackle that this summer. But any, anyway. So <laughs> I'm, I am definitely da- uh, tearing here. Like I'm circling here. I'm struggling. Okay, hold on. So these events that I've experienced in predominantly white spaces, I didn't have a vocabulary for them. And so I could not validate them for myself. And this week, yesterday, it really, really hit yesterday. And then crystallized this morning. I think I have language for them. And so one, I'm going to say law and order. Then I said red red hearing and then instruction. I'm going to start with instruction um, as a socially, um, I'm going to start with social instruction as a social event first. And then I'm going to move on to the others. Okay. So I've been talking to my staff about instruction as a social event and that um, they are um, and I'm going to do um, and, and, and I had never really framed it as a social event before, but I really do believe it is. Um, so I can't like speak to you fluently about it because I haven't, I've never said it out loud. So let's, let's just play with it. Instruction is the act of getting students or the learner to learn. And some people say it's the act of giving learners new information, but information is not learning. Information is part of the learning process, but it doesn't constitute learning. So a learner can hear instruct, can hear information, but it doesn't mean that they're going to learn it. Learning constitutes a um, storage and storage. When I say storage, retrieval, application. I'm going into podcast number one, you guys. I don't like to do that in podcast number two, but... I need to make a point. Storage, retrieval, application. That's what you do with the information. However, the whole process of getting that information into 
It's not just storage. It's long-term storage, retrieval, and application that it no longer remains the same. That in order to apply it to something new, that that information becomes something else. Knowledge and wisdom. Now, in the act of sharing the knowledge and wisdom, you might give that information. But that information doesn't make it into long-term storage unless it turns into knowledge. Now, that's my conjecturing. I mean, that's me. Um, that's my... That's me using my all the my my debt. I mean, thousands of dollars of debt for that knowledge, right there. So, how you get information into long term storage storage for retrieval and application is about context, and it's about an emotional connection to the information. It's about the relevance of that information. It's about the emotional connection to that information. And it's about the way the learner connects to it. So then there's a facilitation process. There's a connecting aspect to it. So let me revisit that. Relevance. Connectivity. And emotional Emotionalism. I don't like the word emotionalism, but I'm going to say subjectivity. Um, that's I'm going to say subject subjectivity because emotionalism it, it's it just feels a little more irrational than I want to say. So relevance, subjectivity, and connectivity. Oh my God, I love it. Relevance, subjectivity, connectivity. I got to go write that down. You heard it here, folks, y'all. <laughs> um, you're nidum.wordpress.com. <laughs> so anyway, so that relevance, that subjectivity, and that connectivity in a space where you're doing that with other people isn't an individual affair. It's a social affair. It's a social event. How you're connecting to that information, how that information is being made to be relevant is all happening within the social context. When we teach, and I'm just going to talk about black kids for now, but I think this is black and brown and all, and it's probably not even just related to ethnicity. It's related to any group that is not represented by the dominant group. But I'm just going to talk about black kids for a second. When you teach black kids, particularly low-income black kids, and there's a reason why class matters here. If a white teacher is teaching a black the white teacher, unless that white teacher is intentionally seeing the cultural relevance of that, the white teacher then teaches from his or her subjectivity and does not know how to make room for the subjectivity of the child gives relevance for the, for the information as related to his world. And unfortunately, this is why we need to do a better job of talking about racism and white supremacy 
because it's not just about black people or people of color being victims. It's about white people being victims too. We don't say that often, but whites are victims of white supremacy as well. It's really interesting. And one way that they are victims of it is that they never develop, and this is something I've been wanting to talk to you about. I shouldn't say they never. It is hard. That's a better way of saying it. It is hard to develop a theory of mind. It is hard to understand that the way you think is not a universal thought process. When you are not the minority, excuse me, when you're not the majority, you leave your house every day being reminded, oh, people don't think like I think. Therefore, if they're thinking that way and I'm thinking this way, that must mean that there are multiple ways of thinking. There are most, multiple ways of thinking. There, there's what's called a theory of mind. Go check out the episode I did on theory of mind. To understand theory of mind is the ability to understand that the way you think is not the way someone else thinks. And believe it or not, many people don't have that. They think, and, and, and it doesn't come across as, I don't think you have your own thinking. What it comes across as, you're not thinking the way I'm thinking. And I'm thinking based on what the majority of the people think, right? So if the majority of us thinks this way and you're not thinking that way, something is wrong with you. You're abnormal. I'm going to keep saying that word abnormal, y'all, for a reason. If you've been following this project, then you already know what I'm talking about. I'm not going to repeat that story right now. But when you start saying that someone is abnormal because they don't think the way you think, what you're in essence saying, what you are saying in essence, is that I don't have theory of mind. I don't have the ability to understand that there are multiple ways of thinking. And it's all, they're all right. They're all on the same level. So, <laughs> um, when, in, when white teachers who have not developed a theory of mind, cause that's, it's not just about white teachers, right? Uh, I try to use conjunctions when I start saying race. I don't always do it, but that's my value, and I want to practice that more. It's never just white. It's white and. It's never just black. It's black and. Right? Use the conjunction. Use the conjunction. So when white teachers who don't have a theory of mind teach black kids, they do a number of things. They, they don't give relevance the child needs relevance. They don't allow for the subjectivity of the child if the subjectivity of the child doesn't match the subjectivity of the teacher. And number three, and this is what's really interesting, <laughs> they don't have connect, they don't connect to the children. And I don't think that that's about theory of mind that could, I think it's related to it. Maybe it is still about theory of mind because when you understand people think differently than you do and it's all equal, it's not a hierarchy, then you develop a curiosity, an excitement, a fascination. You are interested. You become interested in your learners as subjective humans with their own lived realities. 
And I have observed in multiple spaces across time that these teachers will talk at students as though they're just objects. They're teaching them. They're not really teaching them. They're teaching the other students in the classroom. Now, this doesn't happen. Let me clarify something because this doesn't happen when the white teacher of lack with it. Okay. So let me say it this way. This is good. Because I've seen white teachers teach in predominantly black spaces where all the kids are black or most of them are black. I believe that most of those white teachers who are teaching in all black schools, I think they have a theory of mind. Most of them do. If they're going to survive. This is so good to me. So when a white teacher teaches white students in a predominantly white space, they're really vulnerable to not having that theory of mind, especially if they don't live and, and if they don't. And most Americans get their diversity not by where they live, not should say, but where they work because of history, the history of racism in our country. Yes, we do have neighborhoods that are integrated, but it is on record statistically proven that when a neighborhood hits 20% black, or when it starts, when it hits 30% black, I think 30 is too late, somewhere between 20 to 30% black, there's what's called white flight. Whites start leaving. Start leaving. Start leaving the community, the, 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 the neighborhood. And that's the same thing for schools. So in the meantime, before that, um, so anyway, I'm going to go, let me come back a little, let me re- rewind. So in a school that where the kids are white and the adults are white, more than likely those adults don't have the theory of mind because they're more than likely they also are not living in a diverse neighborhood. So they, there's a high chance that they don't have theory of mind. They don't have the ability to see and value different points of view. Particularly as it relates to, to points of view that are born out of a different political experience. This is the problem that I have with a lot of the influencers in the typology community. They don't treat race because race is not an issue. No, I've seen them starting to pluck and put black people on like their, their, their podcast or their, their YouTube channel, but they're still not treating race. And and let me just say this, just in case an influencer is listening to this and you want to prove me wrong. Let me tell you how you're really going to prove me wrong. You need to have a critical mass of black people over time. When you do that, when you do that, when you can have a critical mass of black people influencing your, showing up in your conversations over time, then I'll let you talk to me about the role of race or not in the typology conversation. But until then, you, you're not meeting the standard. But anyway, so going back to the classroom. So that's what happens. Um, and then, you know, they just don't understand it. They don't understand that um, 
So they just don't understand that different political experiences create different points of view, different subjectivity. And if you've never seen that subjectivity before, you've never seen that point of view before, it's easy for you to vilify or, which I think is even worse, to dismiss it, dismiss it altogether. So, um, so instruction then is a social event because of all of that. The teacher needs a theory of mind. Um, the teacher needs to be exposed to, in order to have a theory of mind, the teacher needs to understand that different political and social realities create different theories of mind, different points of view. The teacher needs to have an interest in that child. And if that child does not mirror the experience, the social experiences of the teacher, the teacher then not only has to have an interest in the child, the teacher has to have an interest in that child's social reality. And not an interest as in I'm interested in judging it. Because most, I I rarely hear white teachers talk about the home lives of black children in a positive way. Anytime the black home reference is, well, you know, the kids aren't coming to school with being held accountable, with standards, with, you know. And one of the things I love doing in this environment, which is one of the reasons why I didn't want to do principaling, because I think that there's other work for me to do, um, is to begin to raise questions. Just raise a question. How do you know? How, when they say the kids come to, they come to the school and they act like this because no one is telling them what to do at home. How do you know that? Because what you don't understand is that you, so one reason kids could come to school and misbehave is because they're not getting taught at home. That's one, that's one reason. The other reason is, they're not connected socially in instruction. They're left out of instruction because there's no re- relevance, subjectivity, or connectivity. So they're left out. Now, you put a child in a day, in a school day, all day, they don't have relevance, subjectivity, connectivity, instruction, and that's what we don't understand if that's isolating for them that's confusing for them it's like going somewhere being cut off from yourself that's traumatizing for them and then you hear um and then you compound that with being middle schoolers having this crazy hormonal spike, this inability to regulate your emotions or to, um, yeah, to regulate your emotions when you become deregulated. You take all of that and you get behavior problems. But instead of us looking and dissecting the behavior problems, as in what all is it telling us, You then, you then start trying to vilify the kids. So I'm just going to say that instruction 
is social and most predominantly white settings where black kids are, you will see, I'm, and I want to do a net. I would be very curious to do a study on this. So I'm, I can't say most, but from the white, predominantly white spaces that I've seen that serve black kids, you see a spike in behavior. That's one. But then I also need to talk about behaviors in predominantly black spaces. So this is an argument that my friend and I had some years ago. Because I live in a predominantly white region. She lives in a predominantly black region. The schools that I'm going, I go to or I work in have white, a white um, upper, upper management, white teachers upper management. The schools is sheets and the black upper management. So her argument to me was like, well, what, what are you saying here? Cause we're still, we're still dealing with behaviors. Mm-hmm. And I asked her, who's defining instruction? Because if you paid, like, if you look in the South, look at these, look at these school districts that are black. You, you, most of the time there's some kind of state takeover. Like if they have a localized black and it's a localized black board, cause schools are local entities and they're regulated by community boards. A lot of those black boards have been taken over by the state. It's, it's fascinating. It's just fascinating. So then I have to go back and say, well, then not only is instruction influenced by how the teacher rolls it out, it's also influenced by the curriculum that's defined, right? And in predominantly black spaces, those black teachers are not controlling what they're teaching. My argument still is that they're cut off from instruction. It's interesting. It's sad. It's it's sad interesting. Anyway, I'm going to move on from that. Um, The next thing I want to talk about is law and order. Um, Recently... An, um, a decision was made that's going to grossly punish students who fight and are disruptive. And I'm all for accountability and for discipline. No one can accuse me of that. I will say I look a little softer right now because I don't think the behaviors are strictly, I cannot address behaviors without also addressing instruction. So when students are cut off from instruction and they're sitting in a space all day, day after day after day, sitting in a room and they're cut off from instruction, you're going to have to help me to understand why they wouldn't come out into the hallways at lunchtime on the playground and release that 
that energy because it's traumatizing. You show me a traumatized person and then you tell me you don't see trauma on those kids. Now, is that the only thing that's happening? No, it's not the only thing. They're black kids. They're, they're living in a, with multiple access points for trauma. But one thing a good teacher can do and what I believe a good principal can can love on those kids, can love on them. And then you do what's called a warm demander. You're loving on them. And when I go to discipline you, I'm disciplining you in love. That's why when I've talked to most of the parents, when I've, I didn't want to do discipline. Initially, when I first did this assignment, I strictly did love. And that's, if you go back to the previous episode, part one, the impression, one of the complaints when I talked about the different red dots, one, a couple of those dots relate to me connecting to students, empowering students. And they say that offends the teachers. There is, they're offended because I'm empowering students and they feel like I don't like, I don't connect to the teachers. I don't like the teachers because these adults are binary and very, very fixed because they have been functioning in a world where they are superior, not just by race, but by their age. I'm the adult. I'm a superior and you are subordinate. So when I come in and I don't reify, you know, I love that word. When I don't reify, I don't reinforce your superiority. You feel like I don't like you. I I don't, I I find you deeply fascinating, exciting. I like you. What I'm not going to do, what I'm not going to do is I'm not here to reinforce your superiority. And then what I am doing is trying to build up the humanity of students, black, white, or otherwise, because as in children, our society pretty much doesn't give them a lot of their subjectivity. A lot of their human humanities, like you've got to be at a certain age. And some of that I get. I'm not, I'm not against it, but I do want us to look at the implications. The children are without power and you need power to be fully human. So that's a do, that's, those are two of the dots that I, those are two of the dots that I did not solve for the teachers. I'm not going to, and literally they're like, when you first came, the students were in order and now they're not. Well, two things happen. And they wanted to say that the reason why the students aren't um, as tight right now at this, as they were that I got here, three things happen actually, is because I've been empowering them and I'm empowering them to act up. No. Mm-mm. I am empowering them to be fully human. And in their fully human self, they're dealing with thoughts and emotions that you don't agree with. Okay. The other thing that's ha- that you are not supporting what I've asked you to do. There are things I've asked you to do to support the children, and you're not doing that. And when I first got here, you were fearful. 
that your, your job's dependent on it. You're no longer fear, fearful, and so you're not doing it. And the third thing is my the reason why you are no longer fearful, not that I want you to be fearful, but you know that my power has been delimited. So let's take all of that into consideration when we look at the kids. Let's take all of that into consideration. So moving on. So now we're moving forward as a law and order district. No one is using that terminology, by the way, so you can't find us by using that terminology. But what we are about to do is start grossly uh, penalizing kids for behaviors. Yet we are not grossly holding adults accountable for teaching in a way that is relevant, connecting. Human. Subjective, rather. We're doing nothing to promote the elasticity of instruction. The elasticity of instruction says, I'm used to teaching this way. I believe in teaching this way. But I'm not, Johnny is just, Johnny's not really in this lesson. I'm going to expand my instruction so that I can make Johnny, bring Johnny in. Make it relevant so he can have his subjectivity and he can connect. We're, not, we're doing nothing for that. So I'm saying if we're going to hold kids accountable for their behaviors, great. Let's, let's hold the adults accountable for doing the thing that they said they were going to do when they got hired, when they interviewed. They said, I can teach all kids. What they really were saying is I can teach all kids who act, believe, and think as I do. And those kids who do not act, believe, and think as I do, they've got a problem. And they need to be punished. All right, we'll move on from that. Well, I have to, when I, so, so anyway, so when I woke up this morning, I thought about the concept of law and order. And, and I think about in cities where police departments have said, we're not going to deal with crime. We're going to come down on crime, right? We're going to be a law and order state. A law and order city, a law and order country. You guys know what I'm talking about. And on one hand, you go, well, who can who can really argue that? Who wants to be around crime? Who wants to be around disruptive behaviors? So then you get moderate people who are like, oh, you know what? It's not it's not pretty, but we got to do it. I don't want to live with crime. I don't want to live with disruption. Okay. But when you attack the crime and not attack the structures that create the crime, then what are you doing? You are reinforcing the status quo. You're protecting your privilege because all of those structures that create the crime also create your comfort. The structures that create crime also create the comfort for some people to live in. So now I'm going to attack the crime, but I'm not going to attack the structures because if we attract the, attack the structures, we're going to attack my comfort. Maybe people don't know that's what's happening. And law and order, I was doing some reading, has been a strategy that has moved into place ever since the abolishment of slavery. 
because in the abolishment of slavery, then crime became an, 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 this industry. We built an industry on crime. And when you look at the start of the prison industrial complex, it starts at the abolishment of slavery. The reduction of black people to a subhuman status so that you can justify getting free and brutal labor for hundreds of years. And if you live in a world in your mind where you don't have to make a correlation between the two, uh, beautiful, good for you. Please stop listening to me. Please unsubscribe. I know I'm, I'm always looking to see if my numbers are going to grow, but no, thank you. Mm-mm, no, thank you. Mm-mm. When we can conveniently say, this is not about race. You just, so when I had, um, when I look at who's being disciplined in a predominantly white space, if black kids only make up 30% of the population, but they make up 70% of the discipline referrals, can we have a conversation about that? If we look in a city that doesn't have, um, that has a certain percentage of black people, but then they make up most of the crime, that's convenient to say, no, black people are criminals. They commit most of the crime because they're criminals. That's easy. It's lazy. It's lazy. Sure, you can put that on the table as one possibility. I'm okay with that. I'm a thinker. Let's include it. But why are you stopping there? Can we theorize some other possibilities? So you have to go back and look at the function of law and order policies. They don't exist in white spaces. Because white people are criminal. White people commit crimes too. And oftentimes, white people commit more crimes. Because if you look at the crack epidemic and the cocaine epidemic, crack is a low-grade version of cocaine. Not a low-grade, it's a poor, poor man's version of cocaine. So laws were put in place to cut down on crack, but not on cocaine. Okay, we're not going to talk about that. Let me move on. So, law and order. So, that, and then the third thing, this is the final thing, and I'm going to close here. Red herring. And there are three terms that I have, that are in pop culture, that I've learned, not because of my research or my schooling, but because of social media. And red herring is one of those words. Another one is dog whistle, and then the other one is gaslighting. And all three of those words are about the invisible, the unstated. A dog whistle is when you communicate a message without using the words of that message. But you know what I'm talking about, and I know what I'm talking about. An outsider doesn't know what we're talking about. Because I'm going to use words that that outsider is going to think will mean this. But you and I know that those words mean that. All right, so that's one. That's an invisible, it's an invisible treatment, undercover treatment. Gaslighting is when we say we make someone believe 
something other than reality. And I'm going to say something pretty like obnoxious just to make this point. We all know that there's seven days in a week. Somebody who's being gas, who is a victim of gaslighting, can be said. Somebody can say, "No, they're only no, they're only six days a week." And you go, "Good gosh, darn it! I, I really, really thought, I thought there were seven days a week." No, I don't know what's wrong with you. <laughs> what's wrong with you? You know, there are only six days a week, and you hear that over and over and over again, and then something so absurd, you start going, "Huh." Maybe I was wrong. Something is wrong with me because I don't see it that way. So gaslighting is a form of making you uh, question reality, makes you question your own judgment. And it's another invisible tactic. And then red herring. And I, I haven't studied red herring as much as I've studied the other two, so I might fumble a little bit here, but... As I understand it, a red a red herring is when you is a distraction. I'm going to present a situation to you as though the situation is what I want to focus on. But what's really happening to you is that I'm presenting this situation to you so that you don't focus on what I'm really focusing, what I'm really doing. I'm giving you a distraction while I'm doing something else. And while you're distracted here, you can't focus on what I'm doing. One of the things that I really liked, um, you guys know I don't do a lot of, I don't do Trump bashing, Donald Trump, the former president. And I don't say that because I know people, like, I'm not even going to mention the person, but I know a person that cannot go have a conversation without saying something negative about Trump. I'm like, yo, <laughs> like I wouldn't even give somebody that much um, real estate in my brain. Like, I'm not going to let you take up that much space. So I don't do um, uh, Trump bashing. Um, I feel sorry for the guy. I don't agree with him, but I, I don't hate him again. And I used to really, I used to like him. So I want to, I have to be honest. And I had a friend of mine who said, you should never say that again. I used to buy his books. <laughs> I know, I'm, I know, I know. There goes another follower unsubscribing me. But that's the truth, right? So I'm not a fan of his now, though. Trust me, I'm not. But I don't spend time beating up on the guy. But the reason why I bring this up is because one of the things I love, this one reporter would say on the news cycle, don't watch what he says. Watch what he, do- watch what he does. And so I always tell people, you can talk about Donald Trump as much as you want to, but there's a certain genius about him. First of all, he knows how to talk the room. He knows how to build, um, what's the word? What's the word? There's a word for it. Oh, he knows how to build capital. And I'm not talking about financial capital, but political capital. He can talk to build political capital. I think it's, he's gifted in that area. And he's good at red herrings. We're talking about this. I got you all focused over here. I got you, your panties all in a bunch. You're all upset about this thing that I'm doing here. And you're so upset here that you're not focused there. That's where the real work is. That's genius to me. I think it's unethical, but I, I still genius. It's effective. So, um, 
I'm in an environment where when I talked about in, in the first episode where they um I talked about in the first episode where I really had to step back this week and I had to look at the different dots, the different complaints I put on on my whiteboard. Every I mapped out the different complaints that they've had for me for three months. And they bring to me a, a, a complaint and they make it rational. And then I spend all of my rational energy trying to resolve that thing. It's resolved. It's re, is it re, And I check in with them. Is that resolved? Yes. Do you feel good about it? Yes. Okay, great. We're done. Then the next week, another one comes up. They give it to me in a rational way. I then go and use my rational energy to address it. I then check in. I was addressed it. What do you think? Yes, it's addressed. Thank you. We move on. And this happened over and over and over again. And this week, I started asking a different question. You have to ask why in a short period of time you have so many complaints surfacing. One possibility that I can be a terrible leader. That that's fair. You could say I'm terrible. What would you say? What would you say? I'm unethical. I'm um, um, uninformed. Um, I'm. I don't. Well, what would be another? I'm apathetic. Right? They're not saying that. So they're. So that's the other thing. They're not. That's the other piece of this. They're not saying anything about my leadership style. They're not saying anything about me as a person. You're a nice lady, but look at that thing you're doing. Look at that thing you did right there. Look at that thing you did right there. Look at that thing you did. And at some point, when I say I'm going to resolve these issues, they're not issues. I then have to explain to you. So one of the things I did is I made them all do uh, I made them all do duties. I mean, I, I didn't because students have to be supervised. I tell them you can't leave your classroom unsupervised. They they leave the class and they don't supervise. They don't lose their. And I say you can't you cannot go to the bathroom while you have students in the class. Well, what am I supposed to do when you have to go to the bathroom? You need to get somebody to cover your class. That's the nature of the profession. So you call the office and somebody will come and cover your class so you can go to the bathroom. You cannot leave the class unsupervised. See, these are the things that they were doing before I got there, right? So one teacher, and I knew she knew this. She knew it and I knew it. I'm not going to get the details. And so what I would do is cover for her, whatever. And so one day a fight, a fought, fight, a fight broke out in her room. And that's the whole point. So now I'm going to discipline kids for fighting when they weren't given access to an adult to supervise them. So those are the things. So those are the complaints. Oh, she can't, she, she's not letting us go to the bathroom. I've been in. Oh, this, I mean, it's just been, been bizarre. It's been bizarre. It's been bizarre. So. So anyway, 
I, um, I just, this week I just started going, there's something underneath that. So when you take that, I see those individual, I'm sorry, I got, I'm distracted, you guys, because it's just overwhelming. (laughs) You take those dots, you take those dots and you, you go, okay, you got me focusing on this dot here. Now I got to, so like I got a, my supervisor's asked me to send a copy of the duties because what they, because they keep, and this is the thing, now they keep escalating above me because they keep trying to find ways. They're they're trying to take me down. And so I did, I, I, I I contacted the, the CEO this week and I asked him to remove me. I've been saying it loosely, but I formally requested to be removed because I said, this is an unsafe space. I cannot get ahead of this. I cannot get these adults to stop complaining about things. Because the thing is, every time they complain, like with the duties, they went over my head. Then the people above me, then I have to then send the duty schedule. I got to then justify what I did. And then you say, well, you did what was in your job description to do. Yes. But now I've used my energy to to tell you something that should be a given. All teachers have duties. For supervision, it's just something all teachers are told they, they can't leave kids unsupervised. So while I'm busy doing that, I can't do the other work and I can't take a look at the real, real work of what's happening in a predominantly white space that's sitting on the border of and literally on a border that shares a bus route of a city that is a minority majority city. We can't talk about that. We're not going to talk about that. We're not going to do that work. So underneath under, underneath all of that, the red hearings, the law and order um, policies, and the instruction that does not include black kids, what's underneath all of that, y'all? Structures that are maintaining comfort, status quo, and the status of superiority. All of these are structures and systems that are maintaining a group of people as superior as the elite group. Sitting literally, literally, I am, you walk two blocks, You are in a completely different political space. And we cannot look at that exclusively white town sitting on the border of a minority majority city without raising the question, how do you keep that city so white? How do you keep that city so white? How do you do that? One way you keep a city white is by cutting off transportation. That's not happening because transportation is running through the city. Another way you do it is by saying no housing. Like there used to be laws on the book that say that a homeowner cannot sell their house to a black consumer. That's not made up. That's That was on the books. Okay. That's no longer legal, right? 
used to say schools couldn't be integrated. So you have all of these structures that used to keep this town white. They are no longer lawful, yet the town remains white, sitting next door to a town that is of, of color. How do you do it? You do it by an instruction that does not include students of color. You do it by law and order policies that terrorize and punishes symptoms and not root causes. And you do it by distracting people from what really is afoot through red herring. And that is a case of white supremacy. And if the people were blue, we would call them, we would call it blue supremacy, polka dotted, polka dotted supremacy. This is not about white people. This is about a power structure that's for, that inadvertently maintains an elite group that happens to be white. Does that, and we all, this is what's good, this is powerful about white supremacy, and I'm closing here. We all are complicit in white supremacy. So I had a teacher who told me yesterday that, or two days ago, that her, um, that, um, that she's concerned that when students cry out racist to their teachers. So when black students accuse their white teachers of being racist, white teachers back off because they don't want to be called racist. They really, really don't. I've not, I've, I've never seen a one word to make people cry so much. Like I've, I've literally seen it. So she's right. And so her argument is if you call me white, uh, a racist, I'm going to listen, but I'm not going to say I'm guilty. I said, well, technically we all are guilty. Because the structure is built that way. I'm guilty. I'm getting a paycheck from a system that does that. It grieves me. Yep, that's one of the reasons why I didn't want to come back into the system. I didn't want to be complicit. But I also want my roll of toilet paper. <laughs> you guys have to go back and listen to some other episodes. He's like, would you let the toilet paper go already? But anywho, it is a deep, that's fast. That's what's fascinating about it. It's an it's a network of structured systems, uh, symbols, and experiences that does nothing to disrupt what our country was founded on. Are people who are complicit in a racist, white supremacist structure are they white supremacists? No, I wouldn't say that at all. I wouldn't call me a white supremacist. But I have to take ownership that every time I cash that paycheck, I'm complicit. I've got to own it. I don't care how much equity work I do. I've got to own that. I've got to own it. So I don't know what that means. I don't know what that means for me. I will say that you guys know that I've been really, really struggling with... um Woodwork, I've been really struggling and trying to figure out what to do next and all while being wanting to take care of myself. 
And I'll say this, and I really, 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 I'm going to close. One of the things that's happening where I work is that when I am disciplining, doing, and I'm coming, I'm interacting with black families, and I really got to find a way to interact with them before it's a negative phone call, because I wasn't doing negative calls. But um, I'm sorry, I got a little distracted. Um, I got a little distracted, I'm sorry. Every conversation, that family, that parent will bring up race not 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 my white families, but my black families. I don't believe I've had one black family who hasn't brought up race. So I went and asked my assistant principal. I said, "Do they do that with you?" Because he's a man of color. I said, "No." He said, "They talk in codes, but they don't come out and say it directly." I said, "No, they say it directly to me." He said, "Well, I think you should count that as a success that they feel comfortable with you." I don't know what he's, I don't, anyway, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't I'm not going to touch that. But anyway, I don't know if I'm going to count it as success. I'm just going to say it is a thing. And one lady told me yesterday, she said, there's something about you that we can, we feel that you get us. You can relate to us. Relevance, subjectivity, and connectivity. That's what it is. And I know white teachers who can do that to black families. I've seen them. I've worked with them. I've befriended them. This isn't just because I'm black. Because I also know blacks who can't give kid, black kids that. Relevance, subjectivity, connectivity. I bring that up because I think that whatever that thing is that's on me makes me a threat to that environment. So while I'm talking about, you know, I cannot be a change agent inside of a system and then also rank up in it, I do think that's true. But this week, I'm like, but there's something on me fundamentally that does not align with the agenda of that environment. And no matter what, no matter what I do to make myself safe, whatever whatever I do to make myself agreeable, to make myself effective, it doesn't matter. There's going to continue to be the red dots because it's not about, and it probably is, you know what, and it's it's not even about me being black. It's about me not reinforcing an agenda. That's what it's about, so. White supremacy is a hard word, y'all. That's a hard word. It's a hard word for me to even say. I feel bad to even mention it in this episode. But that's the impression I woke up with. That I was like, self, that's what I said this morning. Self, that's that's white supremacy. That is white supremacy if you open up the book. And I did, I had to go Google it. What's the difference between racism and white supremacy? Because I don't use that. I, I, I talk about racism. I don't use the term white supremacy. I don't talk about it. I don't talk about it. I don't. I don't. It's not that I don't believe it's a thing. I just don't. I don't. I just don't. So when I looked it up, the, the difference between those two words, um, racism is more of a belief system. It could still be located in the structure, but white supremacy is about protecting a group 
to give them superior treatment. It's about a structure that gives a group a particular treatment. And to me, racism is about going out and white supremacy is about looking in. I don't, that's that's the way I see it right now. I might have to come and do some more work with that on my primary podcast. But we don't. I don't really want to do that here. I don't want to do that work here. But I'm glad I was able to talk this through because that was the impression. It was a two episode two parter, y'all. Woo! I don't know. I wonder how many plays this one is going to get. <laughs> I make it with three, and so we'll see. What if I don't even get three plays on this one? Because the title I'm titling it. White supremacy. Good Lord. <laughs> All right. If this reflection has had any value for you, please give it a heart. If this conversation about white supremacy or red herring or law and order or instruction as social, if any of that relates to a conversation you've had in the world, please take this link and share it with those participants. If my moving about in this reflection has caused some randomness in you, I would love to hear that. You can find me on my website at yourandidom.wordpress.com. I don't think I said that in part one. I didn't say or Twitter, yourandidom1, or YouTube and Facebook at yourandidom. Let me give you your assignment, you guys. I'm, I'm going to just give you a very, really uncharacteristic kind of assignment for this one. I'm a little low. I feel a little low about this topic. How do you feel? Like, really, that's what I want to know. What I want to know. How do you feel when you hear the concept of white supremacy in the 21st century? Because I think we all have made peace with white supremacy in the past. Like the burning crosses, the white hoods, right? Segregated schools, Segregated bathrooms and water fountains, slavery, brutal and enforced free labor. I think many people get that as being about white supremacy. But what do we talk about in the 21st century? Because if you know, if you do any research, this is the sad part about it all. And this is what I say to other African Americans. It might look like we've made progress. Well, we've not made progress as a black people. We've made progress as Americans. All of us have done, all of us are better, black, white, whatever. We are all better. But even in the state of being better, this, the gap between what white Americans experience and what black American experience is the same. It's the same disproportionate experience when you look at the home ownership of whites is grossly superior to the home ownership of blacks when you look at income when you look at infant mortality rate there's a gap let's say employment rate right education now the interesting about education is that they say black women are the most educated in this country in terms of degree but then we have to take a look at where they getting where they getting their degrees from. I know one of my degrees is from a, a, a not so prestigious university, a school, but I chose to go there for for several reasons. Um, that's one because I felt like my other, you know, my other two degrees really have my back. 
And like my mentor said, based on my mind, I'm going to go in there. I'm going to make any kind of learning works because that's who I am as an INTJ. So, but if you, but if you look at blacks today in the 21st century and compare blacks to the 19th century, then you go, we are better. We are better, but not because of racial politics, but because we've evolved as a nation, as a global community. With technology, I mean, we just have evolved. Healthcare. So you can't compare black to black. You have to compare blacks to whites across time. And the gap in terms of what we experience is still there. And you have to wrestle with that. So if the word white supremacy makes you uncomfortable, it makes me uncomfortable. It really does. But we need to sit with that discomfort, even if it's just to raise the question. Even if that's all you're going to do is to raise the question. This is not about white people. Just as much as I'm saying crime is not about black people. I'm, I'm better than that. It is about systems and structures and patterns. That's the conversation. How do you feel about it? That's all I'm asking you. Can you sit in it? How do you feel about it? And how do you feel about that feeling? I'm not even going to ask you what are you going to do about it. Because I'm kind of at a place right now where I'm like, what can you do? But I will say that in all of this thinking about what am I going to do with the next half of my life, I cannot see me doing anything that does not include sharing perspectives. Sharing the uniqueness of being an INTJ is being able to see unique perspectives. Taking that and interwoven, intertwining that with my training. I just can't see, I can't see not doing that. So we'll see. <laughs> I better stop, I better start packing up, stacking up on that toilet paper, boy. I better start stacking up. But you guys, it's been a pleasure hanging out with you. Until I come back, be well. Bye.